Well, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And we're going to be reading today 20 verses, verses 1 through 20. Then we're going to be uh, looking at these verses for the next few minutes and asking God to reveal His Word to us. I hear uh, pages ruffling, which is a good sign. It also tells me you're not quite there yet. Acts 19, if you're new to the Bible, you can find the book of Acts in the table of contents and page number uh, that follows, and let's, uh, let's follow along together. Please stand with me as I read God's Word if you're able. Verse 1, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And when God, er, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and Aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray as we ask God to open our hearts and minds to hear His Word this morning. I want to preach to you this morning 
on the topic fraudulent spirituality. Fraudulent spirituality. Please pray with me. Father, we thank You for this text. We thank You for Your Word. God, speak to us today. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart that would be receptive to Your truths. Shape us, God. Make us look like Jesus today. I pray that You would help me as I preach. That I would preach not my own ideas, but Yours. That I would preach Your truth to Your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, I received a call from Baltimore Gas and Electric. The man gave me my account number, confirmed my identity, and uh, he proceeded to tell me that my electric was going to be cut off in an hour and a half for non-payment. I thought, my goodness, I feel like we've paid our electric bill. And so I asked him to hang on a second. I, I uh, started looking up our account on, online, and, and he proceeded to tell me. He was like, well, he said, I do know that you did owe uh, uh, such and such. He gave me the total amount that we owed in August, which happened to be correct, which was far more than I'm willing to admit here. Uh, we got to get some solar panels or something. And, uh, and he said that we, they didn't receive a payment for August, August uh, bill. And so I say, okay, hold up, give me a second, let me look. So I, l- I look at my account online, and I see our, you know, <laughs> enormous BG&E bill for August, and it's been paid. Uh, and so I told him, I said, it's been paid. And he said, oh, okay, you know, uh, give me the confirmation number, and I can correct that in the system. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to give you anything, because I think you're a fraud. And he was like, sir, uh, BG&E, we, we have an encrypted system, it, it can't, can't be hacked, and uh, I, I promise I'm not a fraud, uh, your electricity will be cut off in an hour and a half, and uh, if I can just get some information from you, I can keep that from happening. And I said, no, I think this is a scam, and I think you're a fraud. And then he, he, again, he's like, sir, please, I'm not a fraud. And I said, tell you what. If you're not a fraudulent BGE, go ahead and cut off my electricity. I'm going to wait an hour and a half, and I'm going to see if my electricity goes off. Well, it's been a few days now, and my electricity is still on. Yeah, come on, BGE. Look, a fraudulent power can't mess with the power in my house. I feel like i got to say something this morning. A fraudulent power can't mess with the power in your house. Somebody with me? We're talking about fraudulent powers this morning, fraudulent saviors, fraudulent spiritualities. Our text this morning blasts the veil between us and the spiritual world. And what we see is rather eye-opening, staggering. 
For two years here in in the text, Paul labors in Ephesus. In verses 8 through 10, we're told about his laboring there. and It's just kind of a summary statement. And what we see here is that while one-off evangelism is important, and while I'm going to try to share the gospel with somebody at the bus stop, and uh, you know, just anybody that I might come across, and I think we should do that, that our most fruitful ministry and evangelism often takes place when we root ourselves in a certain area, on a certain block, and just continue to labor with people. And that's what Paul does. He stays in Ephesus long enough to see good ministry happen, to see, to see evangelism. In many ways, Ephesus, in this passage, and then next week's passage, which continues chapter 19, is the crown jewel of Paul's ministry. It's some of his most fruitful work. It's, it's, it's uh, amazing to see how much uh, fruit there is in his ministry in Ephesus. And we also see, as we're looking at Paul's ministry here, and as we see his fruitfulness in ministry, we see the level at which Paul comes up against spiritual warfare. And I'm reminded as I'm studying this text of what Paul later writes to the same Ephesian church as he reflects on their church and the reality of their ministry and probably reflects on his own time there. In Ephesians chapter uh, 6, verse 2, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the ru- uh, uh, rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul knew that spiritual warfare was real. In church, we need to know that spiritual warfare is real. And you know, sometimes we get a little concerned when we talk about spiritual warfare in church because you're used to, you know, kind of nutty people talking about that sort of stuff, right? Like the nut job sort of religion where everything is like the demon in every closet and everything is all crazy. But the reality is is that there is more than what we can just see, touch, and and feel. That there is an entire world that's around us of demonic forces organized by this kingdom of darkness, this evil empire uh, whose ruler is Satan himself. And he's quite the strategizer. And Satan, you see, doesn't come to just scare you. And I think that's where we kind of get the sort of, I don't know, the, the, the false kind of nutty sort of view of spiritual warfare sometimes is when we just make it all spooky like a horror movie, you know? Like The Exorcist. But the reality is, is nowhere in the Bible is Satan presented as somebody who's just trying to scare you uh, at, at, during Halloween or something like that, you know? But rather, Satan presents as a, as a, as a beautiful light. He, he presents as something that's attractive. C.S. Lewis, he sort of imagined the spiritual world as uh, one in which uh, the demons would rather you not even believe they exist. Because that's when they can really do their real damage. Subtle, but more destructive than any Hollywood movie could ever show us. Because really where Satan wants to destroy you is, is he wants your souls in hell. 
He wants to cause you to doubt Jesus. He wants to cause you to to, uh, uh, believe that sin is better than holiness so that you walk away from these things and pursue evil. Now, um, as we think then about the spiritual warfare, we also have to turn and ask ourselves, in what ways are we gearing up to fight against these things? Or what saviors are we turning to to get through this world, to get through the discouragements, to get through the downtimes, to get through the sadness, to get through the doubts? And here's my concern is that too often we're turning to fraudulent saviors, which prove to be no match for the spiritual world. The Ephesians here, as Paul comes and interacts with these people that live in Ephesus, which we call the Ephesians, they have turned to what's called the magic arts. So if you look at verses 18 and 19, it says uh, that many of those who were now believers came and they, con- they were confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who practiced the magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them uh, and found it to be uh, 50,000 pieces of silver. Magic arts was sort of the thing in Ephesus. And, uh, and, and so th- these, these believers, these people that are... are Uh, in some fashion following the message of Paul are still dabbling in these magic arts. And so I would say even us as Christians that we could be dabbling with fraudulent powers. We could be dabbling in things that are false saviors. Even though on Sunday mornings we're going to declare that Jesus is our King, we're going to declare that He reigns, and we believe that. But then through the week, it's so easy to turn to fakes and frauds to get us through, to help us find significance, to help us find satisfaction, to help us find a sense of safety, all false saviors. Now, since fraudulent spirituality has no power against the powers of this age, I want to invite you all to turn to Christ this morning who defeated the spiritual powers that work against us. Amen? So how do we know then that Christ is the victorious Savior? How do we know that Christ is the true Savior and not a fraud? Let me give you two points from this text how we know that Christ is our true Savior. Number one, His messenger was confirmed. And number two, the frauds were shamed. Let me, let me break it down in the text here. First, His messenger was confirmed. We see this man, Paul. Paul is an apostle. An apostle was a particular role that existed in the first century. It was somebody who had seen the Lord Jesus Christ, who had been tutored by Jesus himself. An apostle then is somebody who was by Jesus instructed to take the message of the gospel, this new revelation, and deliver it to the world. And so the apostles brought a new revelation of God. That revelation culminated in the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation. 
Paul was an apostle. Now, signs were given as a way to confirm Paul's message. Because he's bringing a new message, because he's bringing new revelation of God, there needs to be some kind of confirmation. And this is the way God always worked. Think about Moses. How did God confirm the work of Moses? Well, he parted Red Seas. Water turned to blood. And we go through, I could go through all the various prophets, and so many of them had miraculous signs attached to them as ways to confirm that this was indeed God's revelation. With this, this final era of revelation that we receive with the New Testament, the apostles have various miracles and signs that are attached to them as a way to confirm the message that they deliver. So as Paul gets to Ephesus, he, in verse 1, meets these disciples. They're called disciples here, but we discover that they're actually disciples of John, John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? We talked about him last week. Apollos was also a disciple of John the Baptist. And Apollos, as well as these, this is a whole group now, 12 of them, Apollos and this group of 12, <coughs> excuse me, they, they had never heard of uh, the, the whole message of Jesus, the, the gospel. They had never heard of uh, the Holy Spirit. They had only been baptized into the, the message of John. This was somewhat of an Ephesian problem. The, mess, the whole message had not yet arrived in Ephesus. And so as Paul then interacts with these 12, let me take a sip of water here. As he interacts with these 12, the first question he asks them is, when you believed, when you first believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now this is a way for Paul to test their belief, to see if it's legit. Because what we see through uh, Acts is that every time somebody truly believes in Jesus Christ, they receive what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, not after conversion, but the Holy Spirit occurs all throughout Acts uh, with conversion. At the time, they believe, not later. So even our own church statement of faith declares this. It reads, the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at conversion and is the placing of the believer into the body of Christ. And so Paul's wondering, by what sense do they mean they believed? And so he's saying, when you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now, they, they had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. They're like, the, the Holy Holy. Like, they had heard of John's baptism. They knew the message of repentance that John preached to turn back, to go back to the Jordan, to start afresh, to start anew, uh, to prepare the way for the Messiah. But they had never heard of the Holy Spirit. And so, Paul then, uh, I'm sure he goes on, we're not told all the details, but he fills them in on what's going on. They understand the gospel, they believe the gospel, and then Paul baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're saved. Now, Paul then next lays his hands on them, and verse 6 tells us, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, first, I don't want to get into theological debates this morning, uh, but it is worth saying that there are churches out there, Christians out there, who would argue that you must speak in tongues in order to prove that you received the Holy Spirit. And they might use this text as an example of 
That being the normal pattern. Now, we as a church would deny that. We actually, in our statement of faith, deny that there's any specific spiritual gift that must be attached to the reception of the Holy Spirit. And so then, but then we still have to ask the question, though, why did this happen? I mean, it's, it's not the normal pattern in Acts, and that's why we deny it, is because all throughout Acts, people are saved, they receive the Holy Spirit, and they don't speak in tongues. It actually happens four times in Acts. And so the question then is not, why don't people speak in tongues? But really, why in Acts did they speak in tongues with the reception of the Holy Spirit these four, these four times? When I go to BB&T, and I give a deposit of you know, millions and millions of dollars in, in cash, uh, I get a receipt as proof of my deposit. And I'm sure when you go and you take your $10 bill and give a deposit in your own bank, <laughs> they give you a receipt of your deposit. Now, four times in the book of Acts, there's a receipt given with the deposit of the Holy Spirit. A, a display, a proof that this actually is the same Spirit of God deposited into the life of these believers. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells the, his, his followers that the gospel is going to go first to the Jews and then to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. And that becomes the outline of Acts, and those are the first three receipts that are given. In Acts chapter 2, there's a receipt given to the Jews at the day of Pentecost. They believe, they receive the Holy Spirit, and what happens? They speak in tongues. As a sign against, this goes back to the prophecy of Joel, greatest book in the Bible, uh, it's a sign against those who don't believe that, uh, that, that they will speak in other languages showing that the gospel's going from Israel to all of the world, all right? So they speak in tongues as a proof of the Holy Spirit, as a receipt. Second time it happens is in, is in Acts chapter 8. It goes from the Jews to what? The Samaritans. When the Samaritans believe, it comes with signs attached to that to say the Samaritans received the same spirit as the Jews received. The third receipt we see is in Acts chapter 11. After Cornelius and his crew get saved, they're Gentiles. And when they receive the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues as a way to say the same spirit that went to the Jews, that went to the Samaritans, has now gone to the Gentiles. Acts 1.8, covering the whole world. You see, you, you, see, you see the point there. But then, this is a little different, here's the fourth receipt. Paul goes to the Ephesians, and the Ephesians, when they believe, also speak in tongues as a sign. Why? I feel like I'm teaching a seminary class right now. Here's why I think. Because Paul's apostleship was, always in, was often in question. Was Paul a legit apostle? And Paul has become the key figure taking the church to the Gentiles, taking the church to the rest of the globe. And the previous receipts were given through the ministry of, of who? Peter, right? And Peter and Paul are often sort of juxtaposed uh, in, in the Scripture as, as uh, you know, 
is, is Paul as legit as Peter? And so what the Holy Spirit is doing here is he's giving that same kind of receipt through the ministry of Paul. Saying the same Spirit, listen to this, who went to the uh, Jews is the same Spirit who went to the Samaritans, is the same Spirit who went to the Gentiles, and that is the Spirit through which Paul is filled, has power, and is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to confirm the messenger. So how do we know that Jesus is legit? Well, first, his messenger was confirmed. Now this goes on in verses 11 and 12. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. Notice it doesn't say Paul was doing extraordinary miracles. This is God's work through Paul. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that, look at it, even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. Their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. This is crazy. I mean, there was so much power of God evident to confirm this messenger that the word that he is speaking is indeed the word of life. And it was confirmed with such signs that it shook up the entire country. Daryl Bach points out that this sounds very similar to the, mess- or to, the, to the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus was at the height of his own ministry prior to going to the cross, and just everywhere he went, people were healed of their diseases to confirm that Jesus was indeed the true Son of God. And now what we see is the ministry of Jesus continues through Paul, particularly as Paul preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's really all about that message, saints. It's not about the healings. It's not about the miracles. It's about confirmation, listen, that the blood of Jesus covers your sins. Is anybody with me? That's what it's about. The gospel message proclaimed through his messenger, Paul. It can be trusted. Now, the second way we know that Jesus is the true Savior in the text here, first, the messenger was confirmed. Secondly, the frauds are shamed. The next scene here in chapter 19 feels like it could come out of a comedy horror movie. And getting into fall and October, maybe that's just on my mind. Not horror movies, not comedy movies, the best genre, comedy horror. What we see here are these seven brothers. They're, they're known as the sons of Sceva. And they are Jewish exorcists. Now, Jewish, Jewish exorcism would be like mysticism related to the occult, related to witchcraft, related to magic. It's all kind of the same thing, all right? All forms of mysticism and spirituality outside of the Bible could be categorized under witchcraft, according to Deuteronomy, which we are to run away from. Christians are to have nothing to do with witchcraft, all right? These sons of Sceva are uh, these Jewish magicians. They're mystics. They're exorcists. And they're looking for the latest formula. And we see that formulas were a big deal because uh, later on in the text, they're burning books probably filled with all kinds of magic formulas to access the spiritual world. 
And so they're looking for the latest formula, and they see what's happening through the Apostle Paul, and so what do they say? Ooh, there's something we can learn from this. And so they create a formula out of, out of, out of uh, Paul's, Paul's work. However, they are seven frauds. It doesn't work. Why? Because they don't have the spirit that Paul has. They don't have the Holy Spirit that just filled these uh, Ephesian believers came, coming with confirmation. The Holy Spirit is framing this entire text. These frauds don't have the Spirit of God. The power in this text is not in Paul, the man. The power is not even in the vowels and the consonants and the syllables that come together which form the word Jesus. You see, today there's often a lot of confusion on the name of Jesus, right? You might hear somebody say, there's power in the name of Jesus. And that's true, right? That's biblically true. However, that doesn't mean that the, uh, the, the, the syllables, the, the consonants and vowels that make up Jesus in the English language literally in and of itself has power. As if you just yell the word Jesus loud enough and demons go running away. Well, that's not... That's not what that means. The name of Jesus isn't literally saying his name, but rather it's what his name represents. It's the whole person of Jesus. It's the power of God through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, most evident, a.k.a. in the gospel message. That's what we mean by the name of Jesus. But today, there's confusion on that. And some people think today that if you just shout Jesus loud enough, you're going to somehow get the spiritual world to work for you. That's closer to witchcraft than Christianity. That's what these, these magicians are doing here in Ephesians. They're just turning Jesus, the name of Jesus, into a formula, and it has no power. I think of the, the movie The Exorcist back in the 1970s. The power of Christ compels you. That's just a formula. And it had no power against this crazy little girl that was, whose head was spinning around filled with a demon, if you've ever seen the movie. I lost my spot. Anything that we would do to try to manipulate the spiritual world outside of the revelation of Jesus Christ is a fraudulent spirituality. Anything that we would do to, to seek some kind of significant satisfaction and safety outside of the personal work of Jesus Christ is a fraudulent spirituality. What we need then is the true spirituality that we get from the Holy Spirit, which these seven frauds don't have. So look at verse 13, at the end of verse 13, they, here's their, their formula that they, that they come up with. They go to this guy, i got to set the stage for you, by the way. There's, a, there's this crazy, demo, demonic, uh, uh, demonically possessed man in a house, and they go up to this guy with this formula. They evidently go into the house, all seven of them, and they yell this. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. There's their formula. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims proclaims. I picture them with their holy water. I adjure you. I don't know. With the, with the, uh, with the G, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, it's been a while since I've used a LeBron James uh, sermon illustration, so allow me yet another. 
Skip Bayless, uh, who used to be with ESPN, is one of LeBron's harshest critics. He just can't stand LeBron. Can't shoot. Most recently, he was saying that LeBron has love handles. He's out of shape. Some fellows say, hey, what's, what's wrong with love handles? Right? Um, uh, he scored 35,000 points, and Skip Bayless says, in 35,000 games. Um, but listen to this. i got to go all the way back to 2008 for this one. And, and, uh, what's it, huh? Mm. In, in 2008, LeBron James slammed over the entire Boston Celtics. Listen to this. Even Skip Bayless said, that was a major move, and nobody, or not everybody, can do that. Here's my point, church. When you've got true power, even your enemy recognizes it. Come on, somebody. When you've got true power, even the enemy recognizes it. Now, the sons of Sceva, they come with this sort of fraudulent formula in Jesus' name, but the enemy doesn't recognize it. Therefore, they have no power at all. Look at verse 15. It says, uh, but the evil spirit answered them, and he says this, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I was uh, whistling at my gym earlier this week, song playing overhead through the speakers, and I'm whistling to the song. I typically whistle a lot. And while I'm whistling, I'm getting my bar and everything, and some guy in the gym, he says, please stop whistling. I was like, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? (laughs) I didn't say that, but I should have. But you get the idea there. It's sort of like a, um, the idea is like, who are you to talk to? Uh, You have no authority. That's what they're saying. I don't recognize, (laughs) I don't recognize your authority. And so the demon then proceeds to mock the seven sons of Sceva. The man who's possessed by the demon, it says, this one man overpowers all seven of these sons, and they run out naked and wounded, shamed by the demon. Verse 17 tells us that the word spreads of this incident, that there is no power in this magic. There's no power in these, this fraudulent spirituality. Fear spread among everybody, Greeks and Jews. And it says the name of Jesus was magnified. How do we know that Jesus is the true Savior? Family, number one, His messenger was confirmed. And number two, the frauds are shamed. So what's our response to this text? I want our response to be the same as the Ephesian response that we see in verse 18 and 19, if you look at it with me. It says, Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. When we, we realize that our fraudulent powers 
do nothing for us. What is our response? Let me give you two lessons we learned from this text. Number one, confess your fraudulent saviors. Confess your fraudulent saviors. In 1928, a man named George C. Parker was arrested. His crime, he was fraudulently selling the Brooklyn Bridge. He had created for himself a fake office in New York City, fake credentials, he made a fake sign, he made fake deeds, and created fake documents. And he sold the Brooklyn Bridge to numerous people, to the point where police officers were actually removing people that he had sold the bridge to from the bridge as they were setting up toll booths to collect tolls on the bridge that they thought they now owned. George C. Parker also sold the Statue of Liberty, Madison Square Gardens, and Grant's tomb. George Parker went down as one of the most notorious frauds in U.S. history. Magic arts in Ephesus goes down as one of the most notorious frauds in Ephesian history. And I wonder if someone were to write a story of your own life. I wonder what frauds would go down as the most notorious in your own history. What were the frauds that you bought into? What were the things that you gave your life to? What were the, the supposed fake saviors out there that you invested so much time and love and energy and sometimes even money into? And they completely made a mockery of you. They completely shamed you. Embarrassed. I bought the Brooklyn Bridge. What a fool I was. Saints, listen, I don't know what they are for your life. There's probably hundreds and hundreds of examples in this room. I'm hesitant to even try to name any. But confess and divulge your own practice of pursuing fraudulent saviors. What are they? For some, honestly, the occult or magic or mystical spirituality can truly be a real threat. It's something that, again, we don't talk a lot about because sometimes you feel like, uh, you know, one of those guys when you just start talking about witchcraft or the occult. But Deuteronomy explicitly condemns that any believer in, in, uh, in Yahweh would practice any kind of witchcraft. So, for example, something like tarot cards today are seen as a, a legit uh, way to gain insight into spiritual guidance or to connect with inner wisdom, and it can feel very innocent. But again, anything that would replace seeking spiritual wisdom in the way that God has revealed Himself to us. Anything that would promise some kind of inner wisdom would be against what God has given us. Or today, very popular, crystals and stones being worn as a, as a popular idea. Nothing wrong with wearing a crystal or a stone for its beauty, but it's popular today to wear certain stones and crystals as a tool for achieving safety or some kind of inner healing. 
which can again seem harmless, but anything, this is, a, this is a definition I got for witchcraft, anything that seeks to manipulate the spiritual world can be categorized as witchcraft. As, as subtle and innocent as it might seem. Anything that promises a connection with the spiritual and then thereby providing some kind of significance for you, providing some kind of satisfaction for you, providing safety for you, could be seen as witchcraft or magic, the magic arts as we see in Ephesians. But for many of us, though, our fraudulent saviors are probably much more subtle than any of that. For many of us, knowing our church in this room, it very well could be something like a boyfriend or a girlfriend who we have tried to find love in, in a way that we can only find in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It could be a a single saint who looks at a married couple and says, oh, I, if, if I had a spouse, then I would be okay trying to find in a would-be spouse or a would-be boyfriend or girlfriend something, a kind of love that only can be found in the Messiah. Meaning, we are all tempted, I'm using uh, relationships as an example because we are all tempted to make messiahs out of mortal man. You know, to, make, to turn somebody, somebody that is, is good and a loving friend, it could be a church member, it could be the church as a whole, and to try to find in mortal people something that we can only find in the immortal God, the living God who has condescended through Jesus Christ and come to love us. We know love because we know Christ. But we can turn people, all right, into fraudulent saviors. Other examples could be pornography, seeking to find in pornography a satisfaction that only Jesus can give. Seeking to find in a a loved one protection that only Jesus can provide. Seeking to provide, or seeking to find rather, in drinking or smoking uh, the inner peace that only Jesus can provide. And here's the reality with all of these frauds is that the enemy makes a mockery of us. When we fight spiritual forces with fraudulent saviors that don't deliver, we're like these seven sons of Sceva running out metaphorically naked and wounded, mocked and shamed. They don't deliver. Look at, this, look at the text. Look at verse 18. As they're confessing these things, one thing I want to point out is that these weren't unbelievers at this point. It says in verse 18, many of those who believed confessed these things. Isn't that interesting? That's to say old, da- old habits die hard. You know, it's possible for a Christian to be dabbling with the old fraudulent saviors even though they've been saved. However, we don't stay dabbling in the old fraudulent saviors. The, the, the belief I have, just from the plain reading of the text, is that these fraudulent saviors were exposed 
for what they were, and these believers had previously never been convicted about their magic arts and their, da- da- their dabbling, and now that they are exposed for what they are and against Jesus Christ, what do they do? What is their response? They confess these things. They confess these things. They divulge these things, which means to give them up, to show them for what they are. Saints, we have to stop buying the Brooklyn Bridge. You know what I'm saying? Like we've got to stop spending our time, our energy, our resources, and our money on frauds. On, on saviors that are false. On spiritualities that are fake. On things that don't leave us with anything other than shame. Now, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, do we? Therefore, the, the Brooklyn bridges of the world can't do anything. There's nothing this world can provide that would actually help us if we wrestle not against flesh and blood. If we're wrestling against spiritual powers, then, well, we need a spiritual power in order to fight this good fight. Friends, there is no amount of earthly power that you can accumulate that would provide the significance that you long for. There is no amount of sex that you can have that would provide the satisfaction that you long for. There is no amount of money that you can accrue that would provide the safety that you feel like you need. Your significance, your satisfaction, and your safety can only be found in Christ. And as we often say, in Christ alone. So what do we do, saints? What do we do? Answer, burn it to the ground. We burn it to the ground. So secondly, I I want you to see here in the text, second lesson is first, confess these things. Confess your false, uh, your, your fraudulent saviors. Secondly, turn to Jesus no matter the cost. So verse 19 tells us what they do. It says they gather their magic are the uh, books together, the, the books that have all of these various formulas. We don't know exactly what was in these books, but they've, they've got 50,000 uh, pieces of silver worth of books that they gather together and pile into some massive pile and they light the match. What does this tell us? First, it tells us what your fraudulent spirituality actually costs you, doesn't it? How much money have they invested in this fraud? How much money have they invested in this fake Savior? Well, experts tell us that 50,000 pieces of silver comes out to 137 years of wages without a day off. It comes out to 800,000 pieces of bread. It comes out to 100 families being fed for five hundred days. That's a lot of cash. I don't know, how, I don't know how, how else I can put it. And the question I want to ask you and ask us, ask myself is this, is how much have you invested in fraud saviors? 
I mean, we can look at this and say, oh man, what a waste, but let's turn it to us. How much have we uh, invested in, in supposed promised saviors to bring us significance and satisfaction and safety who do not deliver and is just a waste of your time, your energy, your love, and your money. It tells us what pursuing frauds costs. It costs more than you're willing to pay, saints. The second thing it tells us is what following Jesus is worth. He's worth everything. He's worth everything. They don't save one book as a souvenir. They don't, they don't take... Like, I feel like in my flesh I would say, hold, hold up, before we light the match, why don't we try Facebook Marketplace? I mean, we could, you know, we could build a whole new church with this money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But no, you, you can't sell this stuff on Facebook Marketplace because now you're just, just encouraging others to pursue it as a fraudulent savior. So it's a, it's a total loss, utter loss. But it's worth it to them. It's worth it to them to get rid of it off the face of this earth. And this isn't a, some sort of protest. This is just simply a solemn declaration that Jesus is better than this fraud. So what do we do, saints? What do we do with our fraudulent Savior? The answer is burn it to the ground. Now, I don't necessarily mean literally. If you've made a fraudulent Savior out of your spouse, don't burn them to the ground. All right. As a matter of fact, they aren't your problem. Your friend isn't your problem. Your boyfriend isn't your problem. Your church isn't your problem. Your problem is the inordinate desire that you've placed upon them. The problem is that you've tried to make them something that they are not wired to deliver for you. They were never made to be your Messiah. They don't have the ability to be a Savior, and they never asked for it. And so to burn it to the to the to the ground would be to confess and divulge these desires. Like some of you this afternoon might need to confess to your spouse that you've made an idol out of them. You might need to confess to your kids that you've tried to find in something that they could never deliver. You might need to confess to a friend, even in this room, that you've turned them into a savior and apologize to them. Confess and divulge your frauds. Burn those desires to the ground. You know, Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Again, not literally, but very much so real exhortation for us. Meaning, if, if there is any way that something is keeping you from following Jesus and leaning into Christ for your significant satisfaction and safety. Turning you from Jesus instead of uh, turning you to Jesus, then no matter what, you've got to cut it off. No matter how much it hurts you, no matter how much pain it causes, saints, you've... Nothing is worth clinging to that would keep you from following after Jesus. And isn't this the, 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 the lore of the devil? 
I mean, how does he want to deceive us? What is the true fear? What is the true scare there? The, the reality is this, is he will just get you focused on something else more than Jesus. But no, it's, it's not worth it. Don't cling to it. So some have been deceived by the bottle and need to dump the bottle. Some need to flush the weed down the toilet. Get into a program. Some need to get rid of their iPhone and exchange it for a flip phone which cannot access the internet. Some need to, to, to get on their phones right now and delete some ex's old phone numbers. I'm just saying whatever it is that we could seek to find our satisfaction, significance, and safety in outside of Jesus that would take something that is good and beautiful such as a person and twist them and turn them into some ungodly desire in my own heart must be cut off amen? amen so what do we replace these desires with what do we re- replace these frauds with well the answer is trusting in jesus we trust in the gospel message that has been proclaimed that's the answer in response in the last verse here in verse 20 in response to all of this we're told that the gospel message which is nicknamed the Word of God here, the Word of the Lord, it increases and prevails mightily. So what, what fills the gap here, what fills the void, is not other earthly stuff. But what fills the void is more trust in the Gospel message. It's more trust in the Word of God. The Word of the Lord comes into our life and transforms us and fills us and feeds us and brings us, listen to this, a satisfaction that the frauds could never bring us. It brings us a sense of significance in our Savior that the frauds could never bring us. It brings us a sense of safety in this troubled world and in the world that is to come because Jesus conquered death. The gospel message is what we need, saints. That's why we are a church founded on the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel. Because that is the hope, the foundation on which we stand. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is beginning his ministry, and I love this passage. Whenever I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, I almost always start with this passage. He's beginning his, his earthly ministry and he encounters a man who is possessed by a demon. And what I love about the story is when Jesus encounters this man, the demon freaks out. And the demon says, who are you? Oh, holy one of God. Oh, I know who you are. What have you come to do to us? Listen, when, when the frauds come into the world, the demons are like, I don't know you. I don't reckon. Like, we could talk all day about recognizing the enemy, and I think that's a good lesson. Know the enemy, know your enemy. But we can also turn that, turn that the other way around. Does your enemy even recognize you? Would they say, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, but I don't know you. There's no Holy Spirit in you. But if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you've got the very Spirit of Christ with you. And the demons, listen, they weren't 
overpowering Jesus, Jesus was overpowering them. Jesus wasn't afraid of the demons. The demons, all through the Gospels, right there at the beginning of Mark chapter 1, the demons are afraid of Jesus. That's true power. That's true power. That's what the sons of Sceva knew nothing of. Jesus tells this story as he is casting out a demon and he's questioned on it. And Jesus tells the story of a strong man who has a house and he's got goods in the house that he's stolen. I mean, I would imagine here uh, 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 maybe a young girl who's been kidnapped and she's kept in the, the house, the home of this kidnapper, kidnapper, maybe kept in his basement. A horrible individual. And Jesus says, if you go into the house of the strong man, you first, and he says, no one can enter the strong man's house without first tying him up and then plundering his goods. What, the, what picture Jesus presents for us is simply this. That the strong man has goods in his house and Jesus has come in tied up the strong man, bound the strong man, and is plundering his goods. Oh, maybe you were that kidnapped child. Maybe you lived a life of darkness. Maybe you lived that life in chains. And you know what it's like to be in slavery. In the slavery of sin and in death. You know what it's like to be bound by your sin. To be enchained to your sin. Church, I want you to know that Jesus has kicked down the door. And He has bound the strong man. The, the spiritual world has no power against Him. The demons flee in the presence of Christ. And only then has He plundered the strong man's goods. Jesus freed you. He freed you with His own life. Jesus wasn't a fraud. You see, a fraud is going to come along and try to sell you something and not deliver. A fraud is going to come along with promises that they can never deliver. A fraud is going to come along and try to get you to, to invest all of who you are. But they've got no, they're hollow, they're shallow, they've got nothing to give. I want you to know that Jesus is not a fraud because Jesus has what a fraud doesn't have. Listen, a fraud doesn't love you. They're going to try to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge when you're meeting with them. When you're writing that own, your, your own check for the Brooklyn Bridge, you're going to think you've got something there. But when they don't deliver, you discover the reality, and that is this. The fraudulent saviors, saviors of the world don't love you. They just want to mock you and shame you and take advantage of you. Jesus has what the frauds don't have, and that is love. Don't you know, church, that it was love that kept Jesus on the cross as He took the penalty for your sin? As He paid for your wrath, it was love. It was love for you. And can it be that I should gain? That I should be a, a recipient of this kind of love? Amazing love! How can it be that Christ, my God, would die for me? Yeah, He was the, the legit Savior. Savior. 
He remains, he is the legit Savior. He died not to take, he died to give. He comes to give you life, to give you hope, to give you satisfaction, to give you safety, to give you significance. And three days later, when the earth shook and the graves opened up, Jesus defeated death. He defeated the powers. The the worst that the enemy can throw at you is defeated by Jesus. And all who turn from their sins and trust in Him have the hope that they too will be raised from the dead to live forever with God. Church, let's confess and divulge our practices. Amen? Andrew Murray put it this way, and I'm done. He said, a true revival means nothing less than a revolution. Casting out the spirit of worldliness and making God's love triumph in the heart. I love how he says that. He doesn't say cast out the spirit of worldliness and make God's law triumph in the heart. No, obedience is a byproduct of love. We, we cast out the spirit of worldliness, all of the things that we've been pursuing, all of the silver and gold that the world provides. We cast it out, and the love of God triumphs in our heart. I wonder if you have been turning to fraudulent saviors. And I wonder if this morning God has revealed in you the, the, the shame and the, the, the uh, shallowness and the hollowness that all of these fraudulent saviors have promised and they've given nothing. Christ loves you, church. He loves you. I mean, we could sit down and, and have a seminary class and say, okay, let's, let's try to figure it out. Let's, let's figure out how we can kind of walk out of some of these things. And I just want to simply say today, it's the love of Christ that captivates us. That's why we walk away. We walk away because of His love. It's like the old songs that we used to sing as a child. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Or the songs that we so often sing here, Jesus paid it all, and so all to Him I owe. Or the song we sang earlier today, I've got joy, joy down deep in my soul. No scheme of man, no power of hell can ever pluck me from His hand, for I am His and He is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Saints, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against uh, uh, the the, uh, things that this world can throw at us, but rather we wrestle against the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. We wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. But the same Paul who wrote that to the Ephesian church also wrote a letter to the Roman church. And in that letter, Paul said this. He says, for I am persuaded. Meaning I am convinced of something. I've got a strong resolution in some fact. And that is this. Because of the Holy Spirit coming, filling us, sealing us, giving us new life, regenerating us, showing us the love of Christ. He says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any 
other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for the fact that we have the Holy Spirit, a true power, which shames the fraudulent powers of this world. God, may we confess and divulge our practices today of seeking significance, satisfaction, and safety in these frauds that don't provide. And may we be captivated by the love of Christ. And as a byproduct of that love, may we walk in obedience to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.